Good morning, Covenant family. It's so good to be with you all. Uh, to the portion of our family that's online, welcome. The portion of our family that is here in person, welcome. And especially to the kiddos, good morning to you all, kids. Now's the time when we have the special time just for you when you get to go and keep learning about who Jesus is and what it means to love him with all your heart. And we're going to be learning the same thing up here. Lord, we do invite you to lead us now as we open our hearts to you and as we open our minds to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we come to the second message in our sermon series about what makes covenant covenant. Last week, if you were here, you remember we began by looking at the three bedrock beliefs that define who we are as a church. These are our essential beliefs that we believe Jesus Christ alone is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We believe the Bible is trustworthy and authoritative, and we can turn to it with confidence as the word of God to us. And we believe that the church exists to proclaim and to live out the love of God. This morning, we turn to look at what we, from, at what we consider to be our core calling, which, which spills directly out of our bedrock beliefs. But before we come to our calling, I just want you to think with me for a minute about what is an appropriate response to a belief and to a calling. What do you do with a belief? Well, the appropriate response is that we would believe it, that we would trust it, that we would put the weight on our, of our lives on it, that we would be confident that it's true. We at Covenant believe these are life-changing truths. Do you? What are the beliefs that you are most confident of? I would just want to suggest that if any one of these three bedrock beliefs is not something that you are able to affirm with gusto, that's probably a good place for you to just stop and, and to spend some time wrestling through whether or not these things really are true and what it would mean for you if they were. In the end, belief is about authority, isn't it? To who or what do we give the right to have the last word? Who or what would you say is the final authority for you? If you have any questions about these essential beliefs that we affirm, if you come from a different faith or from no faith at all, I challenge you to be curious about these claims. Read the Bible, talk to a Christian friend, call the church and ask to talk with a pastor. Bring your questions, bring your doubts, bring your curiosity. Those are conversations that we love to have. So the, the central question about a belief is, do I believe it? And if not, why not? Today we shift our focus and we look at our calling. So if the thing you do with a belief is to believe it, what is the thing you do with a calling? You answer it, right? You obey it. You carry it out. So there are two questions that we are asking this morning. First, the question that I'm trying to answer is, what is our calling as Covenant Church? And second, the question that you need to answer and that we need to answer together is, will I say yes to it? Will we commit to it? Or will we continue to commit to it, as so many of you already have? 
I want you to take a minute to look at two images with me. Both of them, I think, are really compelling images of calling. So what aspects, what dimensions of calling do you see in these pictures? Here's the first one. And now let's look at the second one. Here are some aspects of calling that I see reflected in those two pictures. Calling is personal. One person speaks to another. It happens in the context of a relationship. It's not a rule or a requirement to be fulfilled, even when it comes with an expectation that it would be fulfilled. It's an invitation. It's something that one person invites someone else into. Calling is always connected to authority. A call comes from someone in authority over us. Someone who has a prerogative to tell us what to do, like a coach or a commanding officer. Calling is both individual and it's corporate. There are, were other soldiers in the first picture in the background, and there were other uh, volleyball players in the second picture. So a call invites a response from all of us, our unit, our team, but a call also invites a response from each of us, me as an individual soldier in this unit, me as an individual member of this team. Another thing that I think comes through in these pictures is answering a call costs us. The volleyball player's knee pads point to that, but even more, the soldier's helmet and armored vehicle remind us that saying yes to a call involves risk and sacrifice. A yes to someone else means a no to me, to my desires, my plans, my comfort, my version of how maybe I think my life should go. And the other thing that I think comes through in these pictures is that at some level, answering a call, even when it is risky, even when it's costly, brings us deep satisfaction, even joy. You could see it in the soldier rising up to the challenge. And I don't know if you notice the smile on the volleyball player's face. I think all five of those dimensions of calling enter into what it means for us to respond to God's call for us as a church. This morning, as we talk about our calling, we're really talking about four connected statements or affirmations that we make around here. And these answer these questions. Who do we believe has the authority to call us? What is our relationship to him that would make us want to say yes to that calling? And what is he calling us to, both more broadly and more narrowly? So who has the right, who has the authority, who has the prerogative to call us to service? We begin with the affirmation that is declared by our logo, the crown, which says, Jesus is king. Last week, we said that our core and defining belief is the belief that Jesus is king which he himself declared. 
John chapter 18, in conversation with Pilate, Jesus said, my kingdom is not an earthly one. Pilate said, so you are a king then. And Jesus answers, you are right to say that I am a king. Whether recognized or not, Jesus is the king over all of existence, and he is ushering his kingdom into this world. And wherever Jesus reigns, in the heart of, hearts of men or women or young people or children, there is the kingdom of God. The first words that Jesus speaks in Mark's gospel as he steps forward and begins his earthly ministry are these. The time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. In just the same way that the sun stands at the center of the solar system and defines it, so Jesus stands at the center of our church and defines us. We recognize him and we celebrate him and we serve him as king. Our crown logo is meant to capture this absolutely crucial starting point for our understanding of who we are as a church. Jesus is our king. Every other dimension of our calling is a consequence or an outworking or an implication from that central affirmation and truth. In his book, A Quest for More, Paul Tripp contrasts the small kingdoms that we make for ourselves over which we try to rule with the kingdom that Jesus is establishing over which he rules. He says, at the center of the kingdom is the king, and therefore the center of kingdom living is a deep, abiding, life-shaping affection for the king. This one central love fuels everything else that we are meant to pursue as we exit the narrow confines of our self-defined kingdoms and begin to enjoy life in the big sky country of the kingdom of God. I love that image. Jesus is king. It is from this crowning belief that we receive our calling. But that's not what comes next. We don't go from affirming who Jesus is to declaring what we are called to do. There's a crucial in-between step. We go from who Jesus is to what that means for who we are and why we exist. Our identity and our purpose. We are his people who exist for his kingdom and his glory. There is a jarring and provocative passage, especially for those of us raised in the United States who place such high value on our independence and our rights and our freedoms. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and it says, you are not your own, you were bought at a price. If through his death, Jesus purchased our lives with his, and if when he rose he ascended to heaven and was seated as king on the throne, then that means those who trust Jesus as dying Savior are also called to entrust their lives to Jesus as risen Lord and to surrender their lives to Jesus as heavenly king. There's one version of the Christian life biblically, and it entails all of that. We who are his followers we are his subjects and his possessions. We are his people. Through his sacrificial death, he purchased our lives and he reconciled us to God. We belong to him and we are his. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen people, a, whole, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And because you belong to God, you are called to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness 
and into his wonderful light. If we belong to him, then we will live for him. Peter makes that connection in this passage. As his people, we are concerned above all else with his work and his reputation in this world. We exist for his kingdom, displaying and advancing his reign wherever God sends us in this world. Luke chapter 12, verse 31, seek the kingdom of God above all else. And we exist for his glory, exalting Jesus and increasing his reputation in the eyes of others wherever God takes us in this world. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We are his people who exist for his kingdom and his glory. Okay, I'm going to slow down just for a moment now, invite us to pause and to share communion together at this moment. Every time we observe communion, we focus, as you know, on some aspect of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Usually we focus on the way that Jesus, through his substitutionary sacrifice, offered his, his own life in exchange for ours to secure our forgiveness, our redemption, to reconcile us to God. But this morning, our focus is going to be just a little bit different. We wanted to do communion with the things that we've just been talking about, kind of hanging in the air and, and stirring our hearts. Instead of focusing on how Jesus purchased our forgiveness with his life through his death on the cross, we are going to focus on how Jesus purchased us with his life through his death on the cross. Ransoming our lives with his own. If you are a follower of Christ, we will be taking the elements together after the words of institution, first for the bread and then for the cup. And as you receive these elements, this would be my encouragement for you in your conversation with the Lord during this time. I want to encourage you to give thanks to Jesus for giving his life for you. I want to encourage you to consider what it means that your life has been purchased and given over to God. And I would encourage you to offer your life anew to Jesus this morning. If you're not a follower of Christ, we love having you here. I would encourage you to use this time to think about what Jesus' execution was really all about and to ponder whether there may have been something more going on in that moment than a mere martyr's death. Is it possible that Jesus gave his life rather than having it taken from him? It would be a good time for you to just flip open to one of the pew Bibles that's near you or pull out your phone Go to John's Gospel in the New Testament and just read through John chapter 19. So let's come to the table. On the last night that Jesus was with his disciples, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this, remembering me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 say, You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Jesus gave his life for yours. I invite you now to eat the bread. At the end of that same meal, Jesus took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. Drink this, remembering me. 
Romans 6.22 says, you have been set free from sin and you have become slaves to God. Jesus purchased your life with his own lifeblood. Drink with me. You consider the starting point of it all. Jesus is king. We've looked at our identity and purpose. We are his people who exist for his kingdom and his glory. And we have celebrated the work of ransom by which Jesus purchased our lives on the cross. And now we come to our calling. Our calling is to know Jesus, grow with his people, and go to the world. I think you probably have already made this connection. If we are clear about who Jesus is and we are clear about who we are and why we exist, then our calling makes perfect sense. It has three parts to it. Know Jesus. God made us for relationship with himself. That relationship was made possible through Jesus who came to earth to reconcile us to God, to bring us into that relationship. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. Our relationship with Jesus begins with a step of faith. We recognize who Jesus is and we entrust our lives to him. And there is nothing more important in our lives than our relationship with him because it is for that relationship that we were made as human beings. Philippians 3a, Paul says, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Our relationship with Jesus deepens as we learn to abide in him daily through our worship and prayer life and our study of scripture. The second dimension of our calling is to take steps to grow together with God's people towards spiritual maturity, to grow with his people. Ephesians chapter four, his purpose was to equip God's people for the work of serving and building up the body of Christ until we all reach the unity of faith, the knowledge of God's son. God's goal is for us to become mature, to be fully grown, measured by the standard of the fullness of Christ. God created us for community. We grow best as God's people when we grow together, worshiping together, studying scripture together, serving and encouraging one another, sharing life together and loving one another. The Christian life that Jesus designed is intended to be a rhythm of coming in and going out. We come together as God's people to grow, and we go out as God's people to show and tell the love of God in the world. And this leads to the third part of our calling, to go to the world. Jesus sends us to the world. As the Father has sent me, he says, so I am sending you. We are called to show the love of Jesus through acts of compassion and to speak of his love by sharing our faith, both here and around the world. Matthew 28, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And I am always with you, even to the very end of the age. God places us in this world as a colony of heaven, sending us into this world as his representatives, so that through us, the world could come to know him as they encounter him living in us and loving them. That leads to the final aspect of our call that I want to touch on this morning. God's call to live a life of love. 
In January of last year, before the virus hit, I shared with you the result of a year-long discernment process that our staff and our elders walked through that kind of culminated in a clarifying moment when the lead team was, was away on a retreat and we sat down to lunch together. First, Andrew asked, what is the thing that we want to be known for most in the community? When people encounter us in the grocery store or at the gym or in the lunch cafeteria at school, what would we want them to experience from us? Wouldn't it be our love? Not first our moral convictions or our, our political affiliation, but our warm welcome, our, our kind regard, our thoughtful questions, our acts of compassion, the love of God pouring through us to them. And then Travis asked, if covenant were suddenly removed from our community, would we be missed? If so, what would we be missed for? And what would we want to be missed for? Again, wouldn't it be our love? That got me thinking about my experience when Sharon and I uh, were able to live in England during my sabbatical three years ago. What, what struck me during our time there is that I think in terms of the spiritual climate and the secularization of the culture, in many ways, the UK today is the US in about 30 years. So this is what struck me. In England, there's a sense in which the church has become completely irrelevant to the society. Despite efforts on the part of the church to be fatty and relevant by doing such novel things as putting a putt-putt golf course in an 800-year-old sanctuary or, or having laser light shows, the, the culture has largely lost its interest in the church and it has lost its place of influence in many respects. At the same time though, while the church has in many ways lost its cultural stature, it has not lost its real relevance. And in fact, the relevance of what it offers in a broken and isolated world has only grown. Think about this. What is the one thing that the church of Jesus Christ uniquely has to offer to this world? Isn't it the love of God? made known to us through Jesus, fleshed out in the love that we experience and share together within a loving family called the church, and poured out into the lives of those around us through our love of neighbor. That's something that you cannot find anywhere but in the church. And that's what we experience in England. Small, vibrant churches with the deepest sort of relevance. Communities of love, where the love of God, where God himself could be encountered. So all of these pieces kind of came together for us. We brought this back, and the session affirmed this as a focused area of calling for us in this season of our life as a church, for us to be a community known for its love. And by that, we do not mean that in any way our commitment to truth changes or softens, but we believe as it says in 1 Corinthians 14.1, that we are called to follow the way of love. In the first 300 years of its existence, the church was a small minority community within the larger Roman world. And it was just one option among a whole mishmash of, of faiths and philosophies from the familiar Roman pantheon of the gods to the emperor cult and, and the mystery religions and the self-advice uh, suggestions of the Stoic philosophers. So how did the early church make its message stand out? 
In his book called The Rise of Christianity, Rodney Stark points to what he believes was a decisive factor in the acceptance of the Christian message when it was still a minority voice in the culture. And that was its love. Ironically, given the divisive and acrimonious response of some Christians during the past 18 months, it was actually during two pandemics, one in 165 AD, the other in 251 AD, each of which were believed to have killed as many as a third of the population of the Roman Empire. It was during those pandemics that the church's love in a pre-Christian world really shone. Listen to how it was described. Here are three voices of that, uh, contemporary voices of that day. Dionysius, the Bishop of Alexandria, described in a sermon the Christian value of love and the Christian norm of serving neighbors in need and how that contrasted with those who had pagan beliefs. Christians, he said, stayed and nursed the sick and the dying while the heathen behaved in the opposite way. At the first sight of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and they fled. The pagan emperor, Julian, complained to one of his own pagan priests about the growth of the Christian church, which he said was because of their moral character and because of their benevolence towards strangers. To another one of his priests, he, he moaned, everyone can see that our people lack aid from us, but those Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Tertullian was a Christian writer who lived in North Africa. He summed up perfectly what the ancient world experienced whenever they bumped into this small band of Christian believers. He said, it is our care of the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Only look, they say. Look how they love one another. What if that was what our opponents said of us? What if it was our loving kindness that branded us in the eyes of those who viewed us negatively in our world? John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That is exactly what we believe that God wants us to be known for most as well, by our love. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 14 says, do everything in love. Over the past 2,000 years, speaking in broad terms, the church in the Western world has walked through a pre-Christian era and then through a long Christendom era, and now we find ourselves more and more in a post-Christian era an era in which Christianity has been rejected, which means in many ways that we find ourselves back where we were in a pre-Christian era as a minority community in a world swirling with religious options, but with this difference. Today, for a whole variety of reasons, many in our world already have formed an opinion about the church, and many don't want to have anything to do with the church at all. According to a new Barna poll, only one in three Americans have a positive view of evangelicals. So how do we gain a hearing in a world that is not only cluttered with a panoply of religious and spiritual options, but is disenchanted with, put off by, even offended by what they perceive as the narrowness and arrogance and judgment of the church? 
We believe that the answer is so simple that it seems ordinary rather than revolutionary. And that is love, to go back to the original blueprints, to follow the example of the early church, to live out Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians 14.1 that says, follow the way of love. Again, without abandoning our commitment to truth in any way. And that will mean for us two things. First, for us to rediscover the church as a community of affection. To learn how to lay down our rights and our preferences and our divisions and to learn how to truly love one another in a way that reflects the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17 when he prayed, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. I have made you known to them and I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. To rediscover the church as a community of affection and then our going out into the world as one, standing firm in one spirit, contending as one for the faith of the gospel, as Paul says in Philippians 1.27, and living a life of love, determined to obey the second great commandment as faithfully as we obey the first. Jesus is king. We are his people who exist for his kingdom and his glory. Our calling is to know Jesus and grow with his people and go to the world. And God's invitation to us in this season is to become a church known for our love. If you are a part of this church, if you consider yourself part of the covenant family, we want you to know these things that I have just affirmed, that we are affirming together this morning. Not just to be familiar with them, but to really integrate them as a guide for you in your engagement with us as a church family and with us and our ministry. And if you're a part of the covenant family, we want, we expect you to say yes to this calling, to commit yourself to it. If you're a member of this church, one of the questions that you answered when you became a member in front of the church family is this one. Do you promise to serve Christ in his church by supporting and participating with this congregation in its service of God and in its ministry to the others to the best of your ability? The calling that we have just been reviewing this morning, this is what you are committing to when you say yes to that question. Think back again with me just for a moment to those two pictures that I began my message with. Think what a calling implies. A calling is always connected to someone in authority over us who has the prerogative, the right to tell us what to do. A calling is personal, always. It happens in the context of relationship. It is someone that one person invites someone else into. A calling is both individual and it is corporate. A call invites a response from each of us and from all of us. Answering a call will cost us. Saying yes to a call involves risk and sacrifice. And at some level, answering a call, even when it is risky, even when it is costly, will bring us deep joy. All of those things are true about the call that God puts before us again as his church this morning. So, what do you say? 
What is your response to God this morning? I actually want to invite you to make that response to God this morning. We close with a time of silence before we sing our closing song. How would you respond to God?